Hello again, everybody. In today's episode, I am super happy to be interviewing a certified air conditioning technician who actually did not get into the prestigious Israel Institute of Technology. You may know them as the Technion, a man with strongly held opinions, yet a wide open mind. He loves hiring juniors and follows Teddy Roosevelt's credo when it comes to making decisions. I am talking, of course, about my friend, Mr. Gilad Grubel, currently the VP R&D at Payoneer. Now, prior to his current role at Payoneer, Gilad was executive vice president at Panaya, and before that, senior vice president for R&D um, at Citi. I met Gilad during his time at Panaya, where I worked with him, the CEO, and the rest of the management team for several years as he and I struck up a friendship. Now, in the 65 minutes that honestly flew by like five that Gilad and I had this conversation, we did what we always do when he and I dive into conversation. We covered a wide range of diverse topics that could each easily warrant a full day of intellectual investigation. Some shattered paradigms relating to before and after COVID-19. We talked about the tensions and overlaps of being an executive management member on the one side, but then a leader of a professional organization on the other. We talked about theories of complexities, but also super simple ways of dealing with complexity. And of course, we included a list of Gilad's leadership and management principles that he's collected and refined over his long and successful career. It was, as it always is with Gilad, the perfect blend of deep and fun. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Mr. Gilad Grubel. Yes, that's me. <laughs> no, when you and I decided that we're going to do this podcast, it was BC. Yeah, in a completely different universe. In a completely different, when I say BC, I don't mean 2000 whatever years ago. I actually mean what it feels like 2000 years ago. I mean, before COVID, we literally talked about recording this over a year and a half ago. And then this little, little thing came up and uh, look at that. Look how long it took us. How are you? Yeah. Yeah, I'm good. The thingy with the spikes is no fun at all, and we all thought it would go away, and guess what? We're in wave four, so this is really not happening. I'm not happy about this one. Well, listen, I mean, uh, if if ever there was something that constitutes a black swan, this would be it. Yeah, more like a black mamba, if you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you and I, we you're currently VP R&D at Payoneer. Yeah. Um, and tell us a little bit about the company. Well, it's a fascinating company. It actually does good. And that's one of the things that I really appreciate about it. It democratizes banking services. You know, somebody in, in the middle of Pakistan can actually create a cartoon and sell it online and actually get paid without having a bank, without having banking services. We can actually issue him a plastic card or if he has an account, we can pay him into an account. So we're doing a socially good thing and trying to make money while we're doing it. And so we're doing it. Of, in, this is one of those cases where you really, you're actually doing good. It's not one of those, you know. We can actually measure. I mean, if you look at our clientele, we're really strong in places where like there's nobody. You know, Pakistan and Afghanistan and, and you know, Myanmar and and places where people don't have access to all the things that you come to expect in the Western world. And we're quite proud of that. We actually operate in over 200 countries. You know, it's really challenging. 
you have to get it right in 200 countries. So you're, you're an American financial services company, but you actually operate all over the world and you provide online money transfer, digital payment services, um, you right services and, and, and provide customers with, with working capital as well, which is not a small thing, right? You're literally mm-hmm. like a global virtual bank. How would you say, so actually that answers my question because the, the part that you talked about of doing good, some argue that's what cryptocurrency is doing right now. Uh, yeah, but there's only one place in the world you can actually take that cryptocurrency and actually buy something with it without converting it through a financial exchange of some sort or another to real currency. And it's not clear how well that experiment is going right now in South America. Uh, you know, it's, I mean, think about this. Would you want a dollar in your pocket whose value fluctuates by 30% on any given day? I wouldn't. So I think crypto still has a ways to go before it really proves that it, it's the right thing to do in order to be a medium of exchange. It is a financial commodity. It is an asset that's gaining traction. But, you know, as far as being something that a person can actually go to a store and buy something to eat with, I think that remains to be seen. Not we actually, are, yeah. Yeah, we're actually very much into, you know, you can walk into a store and swipe a card or go to an ATM and withdraw funds with Pioneer. That's incredible. And how, how long has the company been around? Quite some time, actually, 14 years. So that, that, that's very, very forward-looking as far when you think about the vision of the company 14 years ago, where the world was 14 years ago. That's pretty incredible. It actually started from an idea our founder had to uh, enable students traveling the world, primarily to Israel, part of Taglit and all those things, um, to send money to their kids. So we figured out a scheme, you know, okay, we'll, we'll get a credit card issue, a piece of plastic, and we'll, we'll give them the means to, to load funds into it. And that's how the whole thing started. That's amazing. It's pretty amazing. And, and recently you went IPO. And recently we went IPO along with a whole slew of other Israeli companies. So yeah, open, great, it's definitely open price. season, right? It's pretty incredible what's happening now with the IPO stuff. How has that affected you? Um, wow. More work, more demand for stuff. Uh, probably I will have, you know, whatever relates to being a public company breathing down our necks uh, as far as, you know, risk and compliance and, and reports sure. and stuff. But I think it's, it's a great push forward. I think one of the wonderful things about the latest slew of IPOs is I think Israel is finally proving that not only can we build stuff and sell it, you know, do a quick exit, we actually build large companies. There are multiple billion dollar companies being grown in Israel right now. So it's awesome. We're seeing a major change. Because everybody always used to talk about Israel as the great startup nation. But when we looked at it, it was a lot of times we were great at starting something up, but you wouldn't expect to see a Google or a Facebook or a YouTube coming out of Israel. You have very, very few of those. And now suddenly there's an alternative route where these companies are being built to last and not just Flip, which is pretty incredible. Now, you and I, we actually met in your previous role. Yeah, at Panaya. At Panaya, right? You were, you were a management member at Panaya. We're doing R&D there as well. Mm-hmm. I was brought in by the CEO at the time, Jake Klein, to do some work with the executive leadership team to help with the sales kickoff event. And you and I, we found ourselves, I mean, really, that's where I think this podcast episode was, was uh, seated. Because yeah, of the uh... conversations we would have. 
our first meeting was like my first week in the company. I found myself in Florida and you were the master of ceremonies at the sales kickoff event. And I thought, wow, this guy can, can, can hold a show. I was impressed. <laughs> we, had, we had dinner. I remember sitting at, um, the, on the yacht. Oh my God. What a, di- what? I can't explain to you how far away that seems to me now, given everything yeah. that we've gone through. I know. We had some very interesting stuff that you and I were dealing with there and the company. And the great thing was that you and I had some very interesting, I don't know if to call it philosophical conversations, but I remember that when I wanted to do, when I decided that I wanted to do an episode that speaks specifically about philosophy of management and things that have to do with, um, you know, the challenges of being an executive leadership member and all of that, I remember I want to talk to Gilad because on the one hand, you have very uh, firmly held opinions, which I've seen in action. <laughs> Yes, I would say overly firm opinions. Well, no, because I'll give you credit. I'll give you credit that I remember experiencing you as extremely open-minded. I mean, I remember you were, you were extremely thirsty. And I don't mean a lot. I don't meet a lot of managers who read um, as much as I think they should or as much as I do. And I thought that it was like, wow, we're really bouncing off some books off each other and, and, and quotes. So that was really the reason for this. But I actually, I want to go back, if you don't mind, before we jump you know, head first into the deep end of management, I want to hear a little bit about your story and about your path, because you have, you don't have the convention. I mean, if I, if I had our listeners guess, I would say, look, he's the VP R&D of this huge global financial services company. Before that, he was VP. Where do you think he started? Probably everybody would say, of course, he went to the 8200 unit in the Israeli military. But that's not what happened with you. You really should be, you shouldn't be here based on the traditional path. No, I shouldn't. I absolutely do not fit uh, the traditional model. So I'm actually, I was born in the U.S. in a little place called San Luis Obispo in California, real cowboy town. We, there, there still was a rodeo. (laughs) Yeah, there was a rodeo there. There were horse ties on the main drag in Santa Maria Boulevard when I was a kid. And we moved to Israel when I was six and, you know, school, army in Israel. And then I moved back in 1984. And, you know, this is another funny story. The reason I moved back is because uh, I went to a technical high school in Israel. I'm actually an air conditioning technician. And uh, when I went to the Technion, you know, they said, oh, we are really impressed by the fact that you can do, you know, machining. And that you understand, you know, welding, uh, you know, go and do another year of studies before you apply. So I decided that was not a good approach. And I actually moved to the States and I uh, enrolled at a community college. And then I transferred to UC San Diego. And I got a, a bachelor's and a master's in computer engineering. Great school. I, one, it has the best real estate in California. They are situated on the cliff in La Jolla. So, you know, my dorms were like 200 meters from $10 million estates. Wow. It's weird. <laughs> so, great school. I got a great education. I worked for Unisys for a number of years. And then Wait, I what, years, what, what years are we talking about now? I moved to the States in uh, 84. Okay. And then I moved back to Israel in 92. First time around, I've, I have so, couches. So you're getting this education, right? Yeah. In an amazing location in the U.S. And you're getting this education 
it's perfect timing as far as where the world goes, the digital revolution. You're there right at the cradle of it all. Yeah. And then just a few years later, it's going to, in the early 90s, that's going to explode. And you're there with that education ready to rumble. And then I decided to move back to Israel. <laughs> well, not such a bad thing. We had a pretty incredible dot-com era here as well. No, it was awesome. I worked for some amazing companies in Israel. I mean, Mercury Interactive was, was one of them. I was like employee number 60 there right after the IPO. And it was amazing. Like everybody in the company was smarter than me. It was an amazing place to work. Lots of things to learn. We built amazing products. I was part of the original Loadrunner uh, project. And, you know, thousands of people around the world use that. And, and that's something that I really like about being the VP R&D. Of real companies. I hate to build shelfware. So I build stuff. I want people to use it. I want to hear whether it's good or bad or, or you know, what they think about it. So that was really, really, really amazing. I got a great education and I moved to Israel. But, you know, like you said, I'm an air conditioning technician from the Israeli Navy. So definitely not uh, 8200 in any way, shape or form. I didn't go to the Technion, although I did go to a great school. I actually had like Touring level award winner professors, uh, and and that's pretty amazing. Not that you know anybody understood what they said, but they were really smart, and it was fun to go to their classes. But it was really interesting, not understanding what they were saying. It was fun. I mean, I remember one guy. His name was uh, Christos Papadimitriou, and he's like a world-renowned scholar in complexity theory, the nicest guy in the world. I think I understood maybe one sentence out of fifty. <laughs> But it was interesting. I learned a lot about complexity, more than I thought I would. So his one out of 50 was better than most. Right. It was itself like an education in its own rights. Yeah. So I actually really had a strange way of moving up uh, the ladder to a VPR. I moved really by doing a lot of stuff. I wrote tons of code for lots of companies. And I moved my way up, you know, from, from developer to team leader to, to uh group leader to VPRND, and I've discovered that I love engineering, and I want to stay and remain as an engineer, which is why I'm still a VP of R&D, you know, 20 years later. Except that at some point, you reach a certain level in the organization where more and more of your time has to be spent programming people, managing yes. people, mitigating situations, right, collaborating more with other departments. How was that evolution for you? Well, it depends who you ask. Some say I haven't learned it yet. <laughs> okay. But I think I've, I've learned enough about this to, to actually build really strong teams. It's funny because what I've been doing for the last, uh, I don't know, probably 10 or 15 years, and, and you saw that in Panaya as well, is I come to places that have problems with their engineering problem departments. And they need, you know, the best case is sprucing up. The worst case is a complete rebuild. And I, and I like doing that because uh, for the most part, what I've discovered is that most damaged or broken or partially functional engineering uh, organizations are rarely uh, a problem with the people there. I mean, I think the number of people that I actually let go in my career probably can be counted on one hand, maybe one and a half. I've never found the need to that. Yeah, I fired very few people. Most of the time when things don't work out with people, they're either in the wrong place or you're asking them the wrong things or there's a mismatch somehow with what they can do best and what you think they should be doing. And you need to explore that. 
And that's one of the things that got me thinking about management in general. And I started reading about management, you know, things like people wear. And it was very illuminating because, uh, one, I've discovered that not all people are natural-born managers. But it's right. a discipline you can actually learn. And when you learn it, it gets even better when you can teach it. And one of the things that I do uh, in the places I, I work for is I always try and build a management uh, team and share what I've learned. And I'm really proud of the fact that, you know, when I leave places, they don't fall apart. They thrive. There's a great management team that was, was, that's there when I leave. And a lot of the people that, that work with me advance and, and are in senior positions right now. And I'm extremely proud of that. You know, it means I must be doing something right. You know the idiom, here lies a manager that was surrounded. Here lies a person that knew how to surround himself with people better than him or her. So yeah. now, so I'm, what about attrition? How did you deal with attrition? How much of that was a challenge for you? Uh, well, it's a challenge for everyone, especially now in this crazy economy. Right, where like, uh, yeah. I think it's an interesting question because of the following fact. People assume that if you just give people boatloads of money, you don't have attrition problems. And that couldn't be further from the truth. People want to feel that they're doing something that has value. Mm -hmm. People want to feel that they're working on something that's important, that they have a way of bettering themselves, of advancing, of learning new things and, and not staying stuck in one place. And of course, you have to pay them I mean, well. Because me that makes sense. I want to challenge you on that because I, could, I generally couldn't agree with you more, but I want to be devil's advocate because we are not talking right now about regular market conditions where maybe the competitor is offering 10 to, to 5, 7, 8, 12% more of a salary, which mm -hmm. is significant. We are now talking about a runaway train inflation in what companies are offering. Part of it is because you have these massive Goliaths around the world, the Amazons, the Facebooks, the Googles, the, right? who are just have no problem, no problem doubling and tripling salaries. Would, how do you deal with that? Is, is it still enough to have a good vision, a good purpose, a good sense of belonging, even when somebody's offering somebody 100% more pay? No, I think it's, it's going to be extremely hard to compete with 100%. But that's fairly rare. If you're in a position where you're paying like 50% of a, of a reasonable market rate, then you have a problem. You know, like it or not, there is an inflation in the salaries. And all the companies that want to survive and maintain their child talent have to some extent adjust to that. The question is, is that the only tool in your toolbox? And, you know, if uh, I have the boss, you know, that if you have a hammer, everything looks like nails. If all you can do is give your people more money, you will still have horrible attrition. Right. Because there are places where it's not fun to work. There are places where, you know, you're a developer and you'll probably be a developer 20 years from now. So your career will not go anywhere. Right. There are places where if you learn to do something really well, that's what you will do for the next 20 years. So you actually have to build things differently. I mean, one of the complaints even here at Pioneer when I joined was that people were complaining they didn't have a career path. So I actually sat with my managers and we built a career path. So now we have a staff engineer and a principal engineer, 
and a tech lead. And these are real promotions that both carry monetary values and additional responsibilities in training. And you can become a group architect or an architect. So that's on the technical side. There's a managerial uh, ladder you can climb. So you can become a, a team leader mm-hmm. or a group leader or a director or even a VP uh, within the engineering organization. And there are similar ladders of advancement uh, for QA and manual and automated. So right. there's actually a real ladder and people understand what is required to move from one to the other. And when we actually demonstrated that people are climbing those ladders and they're getting additional training and they're getting additional uh, benefits and they're getting additional responsibility, that builds credibility. And, right. and, you know, that's one of the most important things. You know, you need to put your money literally and figuratively where your mouth is. So if you're telling people you're going to have a career path for them, it's got to be have- real. They have to experience, of course. And I would add to career path also this idea of internal mobility. Oh, and yeah. a lot of the things that I deal with have to do with culture, right? And, and, and a sense of group cohesion, which, of course, again, the, the earth rocked with COVID with everybody working remotely. Right. Everybody was worried this would tear the organization apart. Well, I was one of them. I was one of the people that was wholly opposed to not working five days a week. Really? And, and where, do you, where do you stand now? I think it would be great if you can work two days a week from the office, because I really believe that the physical closeness brings better collaboration and brings out more creativity in people. But if people want to work five days uh, from home, I'm perfectly fine with that now. I mean, we all learn to live with this. There is a downside to the five days from home, though. Your day never ends. The day never ends. You don't have breaks. I I agree with that 100%. I'm very curious to know what the research will show two, three years from today about the long-term cumulative effects of what we're not fully seeing now. And I'm sure there will be a few. Um, I'll throw an idea by you. This is something I've been suggesting to our clients now going almost on a year, which is I don't like the concept of resilience being defined as um, bouncing back. I like the concept of resilience being bouncing forward. I agree. And to me, the bouncing forward was even when people were working from the office, because you have these global enterprises, a lot of what they're experiencing with their colleagues is still remote work, except they're still looking at each other across the screen, except they're both in two different offices. They're not meeting in the cafeteria. They're not building relationships that are based on what we call non-functional interactions. And that was missing before COVID. But what COVID did, I think, is create a situation where I think companies should enable full full five days at work at home, but I think companies should have one to two team team days every month, which are not designed for work at all. And I don't mean fly people over, but if I knew that every four weeks or every six weeks, I was going to spend two full days with you in an event that was purely for the purpose of bonding and relationship building and getting to know each other and having a good time, you can be sure that in the first two weeks after there's a higher level of bonding and accountability. And then once two, three weeks pass, you know you're about to meet them again in two weeks and have lunch with them. That I thought would build very, very powerful connections. Curious what you think about that. I think it would. I think what we haven't worked out really is how to do the virtual let's meet in, in, at the coffee machine thing. 
We don't know how to do that yet. Yes, there are Slack channels and there right, are the virtual, corridor virtual and so rooms, and we don't have a virtual corridor, and that's sorely missing. I mean, I have like, I don't know, probably 350 people now. Now, granted, I'll be honest, I didn't know everybody's name before COVID. Now I don't even know if they work for me. And that's not well, good. Listen, maybe companies need to have a dedicated Zoom that's open tw- all the time, 24-7, that anybody who wants a break goes to that Zoom or, or Clubhouse or whatever. It'd be a very interesting idea. Uh, yeah, I, I think, though, I don't see anybody really putting enough thought and ingenuity into trying and build that. I haven't heard of any startups or, or any ideas. We need to solve that problem. That's really missing. Yeah, I've heard more great ideas from you know, people just talking in the kitchen by, by the coffee machine and, and one of them telling the other what they're working on, the other one saying, well, did you try this or try that or how about this? That's not happening as much. I think what we were all measuring during COVID was efficiency and did our efficiency go down or did our velocity right. go down? I don't think we've measured did our creativity go down and I assure you that it did. And that's, that's bad. Especially bad, by the way, for us, because, you know, Israelis thrive on, on let's do the unconventional. Let's try something that nobody else would try because, you know, what the heck, we're crazy. I'm so glad I blocked so much time for our session today because I knew this is what would happen <laughs> to us, right? We want, <laughs> okay, for, but I love that idea of we're measuring productivity, we're not measuring, I, by the way, I don't, I don't know if companies are measuring retention, but I know that retention rates for employees that were hired during COVID for many of my clients are very, very low. Meaning if you were there before, you may still stay, but if you were hired and onboarded during COVID, you're much more likely to leave. And that I think makes a lot of sense. I think that has nothing to do with COVID. That has to do with how you onboard people and how you absorb them into your organization. You know, I'll tell you what we're doing now. I've been a champion of hiring juniors for many years. And it blows my mind that I have to fight this battle pretty much at every company I join all over again. Everybody wants an experienced senior who can join and then a week later be 100% productive and isn't that wonderful and isn't life grand. Well, no, it isn't wonderful and life is not grand. One, guys, you keep forgetting you were juniors once. I never forget where I came from. I was a junior once. It was a hell to find my first job. I didn't forget that. Wait, you mean you were not born bald? A VP R&D, bald and a VP R&D. No, I was not. Well, maybe bold. I think bold. Hell if I was. I see. Okay. But the VP R&D part, no, probably not. Okay. I don't think I was a VP R&D when I was fixing air conditioners in the Israeli Navy. <laughs> But so the thing is, you know, I have to fight this battle over and over again. So I fought it here at Pioneer as well. We just hired like 11 juniors. And I said, you know, you can't just hire them and, you know, like throw them at a team and tell the team, you know, deal with this. So we have a boot camp, a two week long uh, boot camp where we taught them C sharp to make sure everybody is on the same page with what we want and need as far as technical and programming skill level. Now we have another two weeks of half day. We're teaching them Pioneer, our business, the various things that we do and don't do, how things are done at Pioneer, some of them technical, some of them business. And the other half, they're starting to join their organic teams, and they have a buddy that's assigned to them for the whole period. 
So I think if you actually hire someone in this way, one, you're catching raw talent when they're young, and you're teaching them that, you know, you're willing to do something different and not just, you know, throw work at them and tell them, deal with this and learn how to no, do this. I, I, I agree with you. And I do think I know quite other companies who, who, who have a similar approach. I still think there's something basic and fundamental of it all being done remote versus when you get into an office and you meet people and you're immersed in the location. I can see how not having that from the get go affects things at a basic sociological level of just the idea of being feeling that you are part of the group. I used to think that as well, but, you know, uh, Pioneer purchased a, a company in Germany a, few, a year and a half ago, right before COVID, uh, called Optile. They're now called Pioneer Germany. And Christian, the VP R&D there, who's a super guy, has been running fully remote virtual teams for years in, in sizes ranging up to 100, 150 people. So you'll have a person in Warsaw and a person in, in Brisbane and a person in London and a person in Munich. And that will be his team. And, you know, maybe they would meet once every six months physically. And somehow he didn't have attrition. So I think it's a skill. It's something we need to learn. We're so used to, to thinking the way we do that, you know, it often eludes us that things can be done differently Well, because we're so used to the way we're doing and it seems to work for us. You know, this is my passion, right? That we are basically cave people driving a Tesla. That we are, we are in very much, in very many respects from a purely evolutionary perspective, we are still in a different place and we are surrounded by an environment that we cannot keep up with. And we are driven by automatic behaviors that have evolved for eons that basically help us be optimal. But these behaviors were meant for an environment that doesn't exist anymore, which by the way, is a very, very good segue into some of the ideas that we wanted to address you and I, which is the, the, the challenges of management. So I just did a, I just did a, a 90%. Can you hear the wheels screeching? Can you hear? Yep, the, I heard that. Can you smell the, the rubber on the I road? I smell the rubber. Well, because I don't want to finish our session today without tapping into you. You've shared with me um, multiple. I've actually counted six managerial principles, which I actually think we will all benefit from, from hearing from you. Um, so just, just a little bit of intro. I, I've, I've worked with many dozens of, of senior executive leadership teams reporting to the CEO. And I sat down a few years ago and I really kind of looked for patterns. What was I finding? What was I finding that didn't matter if the company was European, North American, or Middle Eastern? Didn't matter if it was a mid-sized 500-person company or a 20,000-person company or whatever. And um, what I realized that there is this, this common breakage with senior executive leadership teams. One of the problems I came up with was this idea of the dual identity challenge, where you are, you're a management member, right? You're reporting to the CEO, you have these management meetings, but you're really, you can't be a management member without also being a C-level. Not all companies call them C-levels today, but you're given this responsibility for you, you, you're, you're head of R&D. You have mm -hmm. a slice of the pie that you're expected to deal with. You get targets that are usually annual. You, you're measured on a quarterly basis, I'm pretty sure. And there's a very, very strong reliance on your ability to execute within that very specific mandate of R&D. Then, and that's what you do, what, 90% of your week? Okay, probably. probably even a little bit more. And then, then you show up to a management meeting. 
and you're expected to think about targets that are above 12 months. You're expected to weigh in on ideas that are across the board for the company. You're meant to be strategic, not just domain expert in your field. And I noticed that this creates a lot of friction. And I'm curious, for, before we jump into your principles, first of all, does this resonate with you? Would you would, do you feel that this properly reflects your experience on multiple management teams that you've been on? Yes and no, because the, the, it's not as sharp a break as, as, as you put it. It's, it's more of a continuum. It's like there are principles that apply across both these domains. And there are, there are some that you know, are, are more finely tuned to maybe the VPRND part. And, and I would venture to say that actually the way I look at it, most of the principles apply much more broadly and not just necessarily to engineering. They're, they're management principles in general. How likely would you say, here, how many times have you come across this scenario as a management member where another own, another C-level in the management would say, you know what, if that's the case, I think we should cut down 7% of, of the budget of the sales organization and reallocate it to marketing or to R&D. How likely are you to say, Let, let's cut 10% of my people and shift it to marketing because that's what the company needs? Is that a likely statement? Oh, that would be a painful one, but yeah, it can happen if it makes sense. It would be a hard one for me because I, I'm a firm believer in, in loyalty. And one of the most disloyal things you can do to people that, that you've nurtured and that you've handpicked for yeah. your organization and, and you supported them is to let them go. But I've done that before. It was never fun. Um, the flip side of that is I don't get too attached. I mean, I'll give an example from what's going on now. There's actually someone on my team who's been with us for five years, done a great job, and we decided that, you know, it's time for him to move to a different role. And as we're talking to him about it, he says, he tells us, you know, I'm, I'm, I really want to move on. I want to do something different. And I'm thinking about resigning. So, you know, I asked him, do you have a new job yet? And he said, no. I said, then no, you're not resigning. If you want to find a different job, you've done a great job for us for five years. By all means, we'll find you a slot where you can be productive here. Look for a job at your own time, and when you find it, we'll give you a blessing. All is well. And I think when you treat people that way, they get that. And, 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 and you know, that's one of the principles. One of the principles is it's really easy to build team loyalty. But like most easy things, it's really hard to do. Because the currency you buy loyalty or build loyalty is you give your own loyalty. Yeah. Now, Doing something like, uh, okay, I'm going to be a hard-ass executive now, and we have to cut 10% of R&D, and I'll just let 10% go, sort of breaks that trust. So, but you're talking about, I, I get that, but you're, I, I get what you're saying, but my point was, how likely are you to be able to consider the, the strategic importance of reallocating funds to another department? I'll give you another example of the dual identity issue. How many times have you ever come across the following scenario where the ma management is talking about an important, I don't know, meeting, marketing, or sales goals, or something to that effect, and you say something, and somebody says, ma ma mind your own business, what do you know about sales, or what do you know about marketing? Have you ever experienced that? I love, especially when they do it with sales, okay. on two fronts. One, I actually was a sales engineer for a few years. I decided that, you know, I'll... I'll Go to the dark side. 
leave the comfort zone of engineering and see how the other half lives. And it was pretty amazing, I have to say. One, I learned some really shocking things about like the features that I developed that I thought were God's gift to software engineering that nobody cared about. And some whatever thingy I did at like two minutes over a lunch break, you know, the sales guy would say, this is the thing that, you know, I make all of my quota over. So that blew my mind. I learned that, you know, well, you know, it's a bug and we'll fix it at the next release is actually not a really fun thing to do uh, when you're trying to sell the thing and it kills your sale. So I've been through the other side. So I, I do but know. But how many, how many VPRNDs have been? And, and that's, and that's. Very few. Very, very few. few. And I right? think that should be part of our education. I really think that VPs of r and I mean, you know what? This is one of the great things that Mercury Interactive did for me. Mercury had this thing where every single engineer in R&D had to do a stint in customer support. We actually sat on the phones and I took customer that. calls for months, like two or three months. And it was mind-blowing. I call this cross-departmental literacy. And it's how much do I understand? And also, by the way, it relates to a term we coined about two, almost two years ago now, which we called operational empathy. My point being is that I have still found that these are the exceptions to the rule, not the rule itself. And it creates, in my opinion, a lot of tension around the management meeting. Now, you've already spoken about one principle, which I think is very important. You, you were talking about this idea of cultivating a sense of loyalty with your people mm -hmm. and that you have to demonstrate it. How do you balance between that need for loyalty, which is really a long-term cultural directive, and the need to get behind the strategy that the company really has to get behind in order for the company to be loyal to everybody, not just the people in your department. How do you strike a balance there? And I think there is no real balance to be struck. It's a question of maturity. I mean, you know, if, if I had to paraphrase, think about an army general when he has to send soldiers into battle. You know, think about that one. I, I once... Uh, I don't know if you ever saw that movie, Gettysburg. It's a real no. epic. It's like no, a six-hour... Huge fan of Lincoln. Six-hour movie, really well-made. And, and uh, you know, you see the general's dilemmas. You see, you know, George Pickett, who everybody picks on for being a complete fool, quote-unquote, for sending his brigade, you know, straight up the hill to be slaughtered. And you understand his dilemma. And you understand that he loves those guys. And you understand that he understands that, you know, it's part of his duty to do what General Lee was telling him, even though he knew it would fail. And, you know, it did. You know, the famous you know, line uh, in that movie, after the charge, is, you know, General Lee asks him, you know, form your division. And he says, I have no division. Yeah. So I... Go ahead. No, please. I'm, I'm saying, you know, yes, it's really hard because, you know, these are people that you handpicked, that you really went out of your way to promote and help and advance and build, you know, a great relationship and a rapport with them. And you're going to have to let some of them go in some circumstances, you know, be it uh, reallocating funds to a different department or, you know, the company is in difficulties and you just have to cut costs. 
Listen, I think this goes to the point of, I, I, the reason I think it's so relevant to the duality of the identity is because you are more likely to have those intense emotions with the people that you interact with the most and then with the people that you hire and that you promote. Mm -hmm. um, so this is where the matrix management organization model basically takes the idea of a singular identity and turns it in, into fragmented identities where you now have clans and now these clans could very easily fall into internal civil war and you're the head of your clan and you're now sitting around the management table with the other heads of the clan. And the question is, are you the head of the clan or are you all part of the committee for the one big identity? Uh, that's, that's why I love what you said about Mercury. I think that if, if, if senior executive leaders were instructed or somehow mobilized to meet and interact with people from other organizations, you're probably likely to get a stronger executive leadership team? I would recommend, you know, I mean, I do this at every company I join. Now, yes, I do it within R&D, but I always start with like a week or two in the QA. Right. I mean, they know where all the bodies are buried. <laughs> <laughs> they will tell you the real truth about the state of the product. You know, you can't oh, believe crazy. the developers, but the QA will definitely tell you where it's completely rotten and not working. And that's always good to know. I think we should expand that model. I really think, you know, almost, you know what, almost maybe we should take stints at, at doing somebody yeah, else's absolutely. job. Absolutely. I think Ray Kroc, right, the legendary founder of the McDonald's franchise, made it, spent a week serving fries, spent a week, you know, soft ice cream, flipping burgers, did that for, about, I don't know, four or five weeks, and then sat down and said, you know what, now we're going to reorganize the branch. So I think, I wonder how feasible that is. Now, you were talking about, you know, you love American history. So yeah, I, want, I, I, want, I want to move on to another principle that you gave me, which really, I, I mentioned this to you before we started recording, where if I, had, if I owed you a quarter for every time I used it, it's Teddy Roosevelt's quote about, you know, decision-making. Decision, yeah. yeah. I love it. And you know what? It's funny because I, I heard my son last week talking to a friend on the phone. And what he said was, Good decisions, bad decisions, no decisions. <laughs> no decisions. Blew my mind, you know? I must have gotten to him as well. It's really funny. I think it's a very telling thing. Teddy Roosevelt was a young lieutenant in World War I, and he's famously quoted as saying that the best thing you can do on the battlefield is make the right decision. The second best thing you can do on, on the battlefield is make the wrong decision. The worst thing you can do on the battlefield, obviously, is make no decision. And there's a real logic, there's an internal logic to this, because when you make decisions, there's, things are happening. It's dynamic. Decision-making is dynamic. There's a momentum there. So you make a wrong decision, and then you look at it, okay, you know, you, you course correct, and you make a better one, and you get in the habit of making decisions. And once you get in the habit of making decisions, you will improve over time. You know, there's an old management adage that, that goes something like, you know, Managers make good decisions. How do you learn to be a good manager? You make lots of bad decisions. Bad decisions, yes. But you have to make the decisions. If you just sit there and, and you know, let the world go by and hope for that things sort of take care of themselves, you know, my personal experience is uh, ignore it until it goes away. It never goes away. So you either make it go away or you fix it. So you need to make decisions. And this is critical. I think that one of the um, theories... And I actually learned this from my business partner, Ghoul, was, you know, first of all, I think a lot of people don't understand what decision making is. 
I think they think decision-making is the proactive selection of a course of action. When in fact, when you think about the origin of the word, right? They, in Latin, the origin of the word decision is sibium, which actually means to kill or to murder, right? It's at the, found, it's at the base of the words genocide, homicide, mm-hmm. where decision is the process of eliminating the wrong courses of action. Now, when you have three, four potential courses of action, when you have a relatively benign reality from a complexity perspective, that's okay. But we now live in a world where the level of complexity, the number of possible courses of action that you can move forward with is so mind-boggling that I think people are paralyzed. And I think that's part of why people rather not make a decision because they can't handle the uncertainty. I'll make it worse for you. Not only do they have uncountable uh, numbers of, of possible paths to take, as my professor Christos Papadimitriou taught right. me, there are many forms of, of, of infinity. There are worse kinds of infinity than infinite. Add infinite number of data points on top of those decision right. trees that, right. that you just mentioned, and it's completely unmanageable. If you try to go about it in a way that that you know, eliminates possibilities. You need to make a decision. You develop a feel for it if you have a talent. If you don't have a talent, you will develop it over time by making more and more and more and more and more decisions. And the thing about wrong decisions is you can recover from them for the most part. You know, actually, Jeff Bezos has a great way. You know, he talks about revolving door versus, versus one-way door decisions. Right. And I'm a firm believer that most decisions are revolving doors. You made a wrong decision, bummer, you probably lost some money, lost some face, whatever. Fix it, move on, make a better one. The number of decisions, and this is the important part of of identifying the decisions that are the one-way door, where it's irreversible. Yeah. And those, for the most part, from my experience, are not the preponderance of decisions. Most of them are revolving doors. You got it wrong. Get it right, you know, make another decision. This is the essence of lean, right? If you can, I have found that the ultimate way of encouraging people to make decisions is to create decisions where the cost of error isn't career altering, right? It's not that one day, one door, uh, one way door that you're talking about. But I also think it's not just about the door. I think people are afraid. I think that sometimes that that door has has to do with organizational philosophy. Yes. If people are afraid because there are repercussions for making the wrong decisions, I bet you that organizations that have that type of culture have way more bad decisions because people just put off making decisions until they make colossally big bad decisions rather than lots of small ones they learn from and improve along the way. So I would, I would tell you that in my opinion, I do lessons learned on every single bad thing that happens in R&D. And one of the things that I think my, my people have come to appreciate is I never care about who's at fault. I really don't. What I care about is not making the same thing, same mistake well, this again. Is one of your, this is one of the principles that you taught me, this idea of it's always good to know, right? Make sure yes. that people feel comfortable. Don't shy away from bad news and also don't get people to shy away from giving you the bad news. It would be awesome, you know, if you visited one of my lessons learned or, or even the ones my teams are now running that I'm not even invited to anymore. You're kidding? I'm there. Send me, send me the invite now. I'll send you the invite and you'll see. You know, people say, yeah, I messed up here. You know, I got this 
procedure wrong. Or somebody would say, you know, but here operations gave me the wrong idea and therefore this is why this got wrong. Or here we had a machine failure that we never expected and, and oops, we need to take care of that. Or the logs that we were writing were good, right. but they weren't really telling the whole story. And suddenly there's an openness there. So I'm a firm believer and it's always better to know. You know, I want to find out why things went wrong. And if you don't do that, you will never find out how to fix it. And you're doomed to make that mistake again and again and again. You familiar with the book Creativity Inc. about Pixar? Ed Catmull? My pronunciation. I don't think I've read it. I've heard about it, but it's on my to-do list. He, it's a great book. So he talks about a situation there where somebody... And we, it's something, we don't know who, and that's the whole lesson of the story here, inadvertently erased 18 months of animation for a movie. I did that. 18 months, months right? I didn't erase 18 months. I actually erased the whole root of the file server at Mercury. <laughs> Are you serious? I'm dead serious. I had and to hide from IT for a week. They had to restore it from backup, and until they restored it, I was a persona non grata in the building. You know, I hit remove minus FR on some machine I thought was my own. And since, you know, I knew what I was doing, IT trusted me and I had the root password pretty much to everything. Oh, my God. And then I said, oh, shit, you know, this is taking way too long for this command to return. <laughs> control C, control C, oh control C. Like three minutes too late. <laughs> Took them a week to restore everything. This is amazing, right? So he, he, he said, first of all, I'll, I'll, I'll call BS on this for just a minute, just to be fair, but he says they made a policy decision not to find out who made the mistake. Now, the reason I'm calling BS is because they were able to retrieve all of that content because a woman who went into maternity leave without permission took a computer home so she could keep working from home and that computer had a backup. I don't know if they would have not looked for the source if they had actually lost it all. But I think the idea here is do not look for people, don't look for the person who made the mistake, look for the lesson in the mistake. I think that I, I'd call BS on that for a different reason. I actually do want to, to know who the person who did the mistake was, but, but what I've always done in those situations, you know, I, I would tell the person, okay, so this was the mistake that you made. What would you do differently or how would you protect that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What would you learn from that? And the minute that, you know, there's this like momentary moment of panic. Oh, my God, Gilad is, is, is finger pointing at me. But then the question is not why. The why here is why you messed this up is irrelevant. It's the how that's important. So we don't do it again. And then when the discussion moves away from the, the who to the how, Suddenly, it becomes non-threatening, and that person usually has the best ideas about how to prevent him from doing it again. Right. And that fixes it. And I think when you do that enough times, people learn that the lessons learned is not an inquisition. We're not interested in crucifying someone. We're interested in not making the mistake again. I, I always tell them, guys. I have no problem with mistakes. I have a real problem with repeated mistakes. Yeah, don't ma you know, make new mistakes. Make new mistakes. Don't, don't do the same mistake again. That pisses me off. I get angry about that. But, you know, mistakes, hell, I make, I mean, like I said, you know, I erased all of Mercury's source code. <laughs> I 
how much worse than that can you get? That's pretty incredible. So talk to me a little bit about the lead, follower, get out of the way model that you live by. So that's an interesting story. So I was interviewing for a VP R&D position once and I was talking, I think it was uh, with, with Shmiel, who was the senior person at Sequoia Israel at the time. I think he's still there. And the interview I thought was, was going splendid. It was going really well. You know, it was asking questions about how I do things. And I was telling him about, you know, I was all enamored with Agile. And I just came back from, you know, doing a, a scrum course with Jeff Sutherland. I actually flew to Denmark to, to talk to the real person who invented the system. So, you know, I was all hot and mighty. And then he asked me a question out of the blue that just floored me. He said, well, what's your management motto? And for the life of me, I couldn't tell him. I could tell him how I run teams. I could tell him how I do agile. And I could tell him why waterfall was bad. And, and But I had no idea what to answer. And, you know, it's like, wow. Well, needless to say, I didn't get the job. <laughs> but that question. What, a, what, what an amazingly valuable interview. It was amazing. That question stayed with me. You know, you know those things you keep gnawing at. It kept yeah. gnawing at me. And it took me a long time, probably a year, until I said, you know what? I do have a management model. And, and, you, know, and, and you know where it came to me? When I, was, when I moved back to the U.S., I saw this, uh, <laughs> this poster of Mama Duck and the little ducklings following her. Yeah. And the caption was, lead follower, get out of the way. And wham, it hit me, you know, like a bolt of lightning. It said, yes, that's it. Either you lead something or you follow someone who knows what he's doing or you tell every, or you just get out of the way and don't interfere. Now, there are various more coarse versions of, you know, with the F word fitted into various places in that sentence. But that's, that's really my management motto because this enables you to move forward. This enables you to actually tell people how they should think about leadership when they're building their teams. You should either lead something or you should follow someone who knows what they're doing, or you should just step aside and not get in the thick of it if you don't have a strong position or something to contribute there. Yeah. I think that this answer would have gotten me the job from Shmiel years ago. But, you know, But it was a great about- question. Gilad, that's why they say youth is wasted on the young. What are you talking about? A lot of, uh, but th- you know, this leads me to the final point. And I think we come full circle on, on the whole idea of, of the challenges of management. I find that part of the difficulty for managers to be valuable contributors to the executive leadership team they're part of, or rather part of the difficulty of the team itself to do its job is that The management team of the company needs to be like the mega brain of the organization. It's a team that's designed to work based on brains, not, you know, brute force. And the problem is, is that a lot of the management members, they're so busy executing that they don't have time. The, the organization is so dependent on them, their own organization, that they don't have time. Now, you are a huge believer in, what did you call it? Don't collect monkeys, right? You're like... You know, delegate and, yeah. I, and, and delegation, obviously, right? It's a different, the, the whole idea of don't confuse being accountable with being responsible. Let somebody else be responsible for taking care of it. You'll carry the accountability. But that means that you have to really offload a lot of your, your workload to other people. 
And I, everybody agrees that that's the right thing to do, but very few people do it well. What have you found are good methods for, for A, not collecting monkeys or cultivating them, and B, really offloading? Well, I think the first lesson that I really had to learn, I actually learned this as a fairly young uh, team leader at Mercury, is people will not do the job in the same way you will do it. Now, it sounds really simple, but it's a profound insight about delegation. Because if you can't accept the fact that somebody will write whatever function you were planning to write in a way that's different than yours, but different, but good, or different, but acceptable, or different, and God forbid, better. Yeah. If you can't accept that, you will never be able to delegate anything because you will always tinker with it. You will always look over their shoulder and you will always try to tell them that I would have done it better or even worse than that. You would tell yourself that you would have done it better. It's the micromanagement trap. It's the exact opposite of delegation. Yes. So I always tell my managers and I try to do it myself. You know, you're handling this one. I will not interfere. If you want my advice, you'll get it. If I think you're making a mistake, I'll try and talk to you and, and voice my opinion. And by the way, I might be mistaken. You might not be making a mistake. You might be doing something way smarter than I can figure out. And that's fine too. But you will do it differently. And I keep telling them, your people, when you delegate, will do it differently than you. Accept that. That's the first key about delegation. If you can't do that, you will never be able to delegate anything. The other thing the flip side of that is not to fall into the collecting monkeys trap. You know, you walk down the hallway in your company and somebody approaches you and asks you a question. And, you know, you immediately, even out of just politeness, say, yeah, you know what? That's interesting. I'll look into that. You collected a monkey. It is no longer his problem. It is now your problem because you promised him you'll get him an answer. Well, they'll, so they'll he's, just he's the potato to you, basically. Yes, he's done. He's waiting for you to do the work. And you collected the monkey. Well, you, you reach the end of the hallway and you just collapse into the ground because you have 50 monkeys on your back. So you don't do that. You tell that person, look, I don't know. How about you check A, B, C, and D and come back to me and let's discuss that. So you return the monkey back to them. And you have to be really strict about this. It is extremely easy. I do sessions like that with, with my managers. You know, I tell them, what monkeys did you collect today? And they start telling me, I didn't collect any. I said, so what are you working on? And then, you know, they tell me, well, I do this and I do that. And I said, no, who asked you for this, this, and this? And soon enough, it becomes very clear that without even understanding it, they've collected a few monkeys along the way. So you have to be really vigilant about not collecting monkeys. Now, that doesn't mean shirking your responsibility. But you have to make sure that what's yours is yours and what's theirs is theirs. And it should stay there. You delegate it, don't collect it back as a monkey. I, I heard, two, you remind me of two really interesting examples that I came across. I was working with, um, I think this was a senior executive at HP. And he said, I will not answer an email until the third time they send it to me. Because I find that by the time they've sent the second one and I've ignored it, they usually, if I don't respond, they solve the problem. And if they don't, then, and if it's urgent, they'll find me by phone, which wow, I think is a, yeah, go ahead. a much better guy than I am. I just don't read most of my mails. I, at any <laughs> given point in time, I have like 3,000 unread mails. And the reason I only have so few is usually when I get on a plane, which hasn't been recent, you just, I just mark all of them as read or erase all of them. You know, if it's 
six months old and I haven't responded to it, either the cops would have showed up and arrested me or right. a calamity would have ended the universe as we know it or something like that. None of that happened. So probably it got taken care of. Yes, I'm being facetious. But for the most part, I have real strict rules about emails with my directs. If I can't understand what you want from me in the first three lines, I will not read the rest of your mail. Yeah. So effective communication. I want to understand what you want, and it has to be in three or less sentences. Now, you I want to put no scroll policy. I don't want yeah. to have to scroll to understand. Now, if you want to put reams of supporting data below the three lines, that's fine. I promise you I won't read them, but you can put them there if it makes you feel comfortable. And I insist on that. And it makes for very, very, very effective communication because most of the time they have to sit and think about how would I convey this to Gilad in three sentences Yeah. and not do a brain dump. By the way, that's something I learned in sales. I was in sales, my first sales call, you know, I was the sales engineer and the salesperson hands it over to me and being ignorant of sales <laughs> as I was at the time. I did a brain dump. I told him everything I ever heard or knew about the product and being one of the architects of it. I knew a lot. And the guy almost killed me. I said, no, no, no. You don't understand your role here. I'm the salesperson who lies. You're the salesperson who lies, but appears to be telling the truth. So you have to be on point. You can't do a brain dump. So, a little bit so, cynical. Just a little bit cynical. Well, you know, he was a sketchy sales guy. He did great. He, he met his quota every single quarter, but he was a little sketchy. But the thing to learn from that is effective communication. What are you trying to get across? How can you do that effectively? And how can you avoid somebody misinterpreting, which is the worst form of, 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 of communication yeah. that can be? You meant something and it came across completely different. And by the way, that's one of the benefits of my American uh, education. I really learned how to write in the U.S. You know, think about what you want to say, write an outline, see that your outline actually works together as bullet points, yeah. and then start filling in the details. And, and it makes a huge difference when you're trying to tell a story. I keep telling my manager this. A presentation is nothing but a story. You want to tell a story. It has to be effective. And it has to be standalone because you need to assume that it will be forwarded. So if it's comprehensible to the person right. that you sent it to, but not to the second person who right. got it, you it's fail. Appreciating. It's appreciating in value. Yes. So effective communication is really, really, really important. So you have to not collect monkeys. You have to be able to delegate and accept the very painful thing. I mean, I was very, very, very emotional about my code. I kid you not. I, I got really I know upset. you. I know you generally. You have, you're, you're a very passionate guy. It's funny, you know. One of the things I tell my guys about engineering excellence, and, you know, they, they, they thought I was the weirdest. I said, your code needs to be pretty. Yeah, code hygiene, of course. It needs to be pretty. Because if it's not, the person that comes after you to try and maintain that thing would either not be able to figure out what's going on or hate it and just throw it away and write it again. Yeah. So it needs to be pretty. It needs to be aesthetic. So aesthetics matter and they matter in, in your writing. They matter in the fact that you have to accept that there are different aesthetics than yours. So somebody would write the code. If it's good code, if it's aesthetic, that's fine. It's not your code, but you know, I was a really good programmer. I can probably do the work of, 
on a good day, maybe three people. But I could never do the work of four. And God forbid, five, six, or a hundred. So the whole thing about building teams is delegating to them and making sure that they do it the right way, but not your way, just the right way. And that's really important. I think that's the distinction, you know, between being a senior manager and a VPRND. It's much more important at the VPRND level to be able to delegate to your direct team. You don't really delegate that much to your brothers or sisters on on the ELT, but it's much more important. And, you know, sometimes I'm actually willing to collect monkeys at the executive leadership team. I try to avoid that there as well. But sometimes, you know, they're gorillas and there's no choice. I have to collect them. (laughs) So I usually like to ask for a recommended book and a favorite quote. And I think we did the favorite quote piece, right? The Teddy Roosevelt quote. What would you recommend as a book? What's like a really great book that influenced you? It doesn't, by the way, it doesn't have to be limited to management. I have... So many of them. I actually went through, I don't know, probably complete vanity. But I went and tried to mark all the books that I've remembered that I've read on, on Goodreads. I stopped at like 800, <laughs> which is a crazy, insane number. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. So favorite, science fiction. I'm an absolute fan of science fiction. So anything that's a good, strong science fiction that gets is that escapism for you or you also take lessons on leadership from that i sometimes take lessons on leadership from that as well there are things to be learned from that as well especially if it's well written so my favorite probably would be hyperion and the fall of hyperion okay um recently i just finished reading the five dysfunctions of a team which i found a fascinating book yes that's a very very good parable i like that very much um, what got you here won't get you there is another interesting one I've read recently. Um, Amazing. Yeah, the thing the thing about working from home, this is a bummer. I used to have all this wonderful free time sitting in parking in, in traffic jams so I could listen to audiobooks. Now I don't have time for audiobooks. I work. <laughs> God forbid. Well, listen, I know. Um, first of all, thank you. I knew it was, it was I, I knew it was, I knew I would enjoy this even before it started. And I'm glad that I really, really did. And I'm going to end with wishing you good luck. You have Iron Man coming up this coming November because, because in all of your free time between the work and the 800 books, you also do Iron Man. Yeah, actually that's like a consolation prize. There, there was supposed to be a full Iron Man in Estonia. And I decided that with the current craziness of COVID, I'm not going to travel. But Iron Man indulged me, and they're coming to Israel. So it was a half Iron Man in Tiberias in November. So at least something to look forward to. <laughs> okay, I'm wishing you a lot of luck, and I do want to come watch one of your lessons learned. I'll invite you to one of them. Gilad Consider Gilad. yourself invited. VP R&D for Payoneer, thank you very, very much for taking the time. I know how busy your schedule is, and I'm waiting for our in-person coffee. It's been a pleasure, as usual. Bye.